The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. All the early warriors are grey, clay-coloured. The newer ones, which have the colour, are really quite extraordinary and have really extraordinary details, much more than, than simply a bit of mud. And to make an eyebrow, they have things, for example, painted eyelashes, which in the old statues, the 6,000 or the, the 2,000 which have been excavated of the 6,000 in, in pit number one, none of them have eyelashes, very few of them have colour, so there are new techniques um, to preserve the colour. That was Edward Berman discussing the Terracotta Warriors. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This month has seen the opening of a new exhibition in Liverpool, featuring some of the iconic Chinese terracotta warriors. To mark the occasion, we've caught up with Edward Berman, whose latest book explores the history of these amazing figures. He spoke to our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. 
So this underground army of warriors guarded the tomb of China's first emperor, Qin Shi Huang, and and remained undiscovered for more than 2,000 years. Um, And in your book, you write about the history of the discovery, the mysteries behind their creation, and then what's left to be discovered as well. So perhaps we could start by talking about their chance discovery in 1974 and how it came about. In the spring of 1974, there was a big drought in the area just outside Xi'an. And some smallholders, family, maybe four or five of them, were digging to uh, make a well for their fruit orchards. And as they dug down, they began to hit hard things in the earth and pieces of terracotta, arms, pieces of hand, a piece of head emerged from the soil. And then also some metal things such as arrowheads. And it was fairly normal at that time for people who found something underground to sell them to local collectors or just to put them on offer. And that's what they did. They sold quite a lot of the of the arrowheads because it was a nice bit of extra income. But they didn't realize, obviously, how important it was. And it wasn't until a few weeks later that a, a journalist who happened to be staying in Xi'an visiting his family understood from the huge quantity of material that it was something very unusual. He wrote a report in an official magazine in Beijing, and the ministry um, immediately sent a team to try to understand what was happening. And uh, three archaeologists from Xi'an, under the leadership of the man who's still living in his mid-80s, still enthusiastic and knows everything about them, who actually interviewed for the first chapter of the book, they were sent out to um, to dig. And even they were surprised because the more they dug, the more they found. And they suddenly realized that it was something really immense. Professor uh, Yuan, the man who was the first um, archaeologist who went there, he told me he expected to be there for three or four weeks. And he was still there 35 years later because it just grew, grew bigger and bigger. What was known or suspected about the site before it was earthed in the 70s? Were there any records that indicated that something massive might have been here before? No, nothing at all. Nothing. There were records. The early Han historian, Sima Chen, who wrote a biography of the emperor, wrote about the mausoleum, which is about one and a half miles away. And so they knew that there was a mausoleum with an underground burial chamber, but nothing was ever said about an army or about any of the other things around the site of the mausoleum. So if you could bring us uh, right up to date then, what do we know about the scale of the discovery right now? Well, it's growing all the time. This is the astonishing thing, that the pit one, where they first worked, and which was the first to be completely excavated, and where most of the warriors we see today, and certainly the ones in Liverpool at the exhibition come from, is only around 200 metres long. Now, the chief archaeologist believes, as I explain actually at the end of the book, that the whole site is probably around 100 square kilometres. So 200 metres within 100 square kilometres is really nothing. So now he believes that the grand mausoleum site went all the way from the mountains to the south of the site to the river, um, the river way, which drains into the Yellow River to the north. If we can talk a little about the, the man that this uh, impressive mausoleum was built for, um, who was China's first emperor and, and why was it built for him? Well, he wasn't an emperor in the beginning. 
He was um, he came from a family which had been ruling parts of Western China for about five or six hundred years. One of his ancestors, uh, Duke Jing, in the eighth century BC, was already an important feudal lord under the Zhou dynasty before. They were dukes who then became kings, and so uh, the first emperor was born as the king of Qin, one of the seven main um, states at that time. And when he became king, it was normal practice for the king at his accession to start preparing for his funeral. And the reason for this was very simple, that if by chance somebody died, they had to have something ready. So the old rites, which explain um, the duties of the king, all say that when he becomes king, he starts to prepare his coffin, which is then cleaned and polished and lacquered every year and gradually develops um, a mausoleum site or something bigger. So this was a completely normal thing to do. What happened in his case was that while the first tomb probably was going to be the same size as most of the others and nothing very exceptional, his ambitions for his mausoleum increased when he made himself emperor. Because obviously an emperor would need to have a huge mausoleum, much bigger than all of his predecessors as kings. How common is it to see a mausoleum of this scale? Is it, is it unique and has anything been found since that might match this? Yes, there are several. Um, there is one just north of Xi'an, um, which is the tomb of one of the early Han emperors, the Han of the dynasty that followed the Qin. That actually is not so big territorially, but it's much larger, more sophisticated in its organization. For example, there's a central tomb with 81 buildings which represent the ministries of the government around it, each filled with soldiers, with um, animals, I mean, dead animals, false animals, for supplies for the future emperor. And there we're talking something around 40,000 figures, which is much more than in the first emperors. But they're half size and they're made of wood. They're not, um, not terracotta warriors. But it was very normal for one emperor to wish, especially at the beginning of a new dynasty, to build something bigger than the previous dynasty to show how powerful they were. Even at local levels, there are quite a lot of large mausoleums. The one about the same time as Chen Jifang's grandfather, for example, in Shandong, near Qingdao in, in the west, about halfway between Beijing and, and Shanghai, which in which the, the, the local duke was buried with about 400 horses and several hundred men. So it was not a completely new thing. Chen Jifang was simply capable of dreaming on a larger scale. And can you take us through this belief um, of the afterlife? How would they have believed that this kind of tomb or mausoleum would have been used? Well, it was a reproduction um, of real life, a bit like in Egypt. I mean, they believed that life would continue. And so this, this was an attempt to rebuild the city and the empire inside the tomb so that he was living in the real tomb. He would live, he believed that he would look over and supervise the emperor, the empire for 10,000 years. Even the famous Mercury rivers, which are known to be there from various surveys, they represented real rivers. So it was probably we would find inside a three-dimensional map um, of the empire with the mountains around it, the whole area with the river plans. So it's like a reproduction in miniature of of the whole empire, and at the center of the empire is the mausoleum. 
And so the emperor always has connection and contact with the whole um, area. And that's really its function. It's a microcosm of his of his empire, his city, his capital, and his own life. It's obviously not just the warriors, which I'd like to talk about the the other figures and other artifacts found. But if we could talk first, perhaps about the terracotta warriors, and and could you describe a, a little of the detail that you see on them? They're they're not all just homogenous clay replicas, are they? They're all quite different. And, and what might you see when you're looking at them? Well, they're, they're quite different. They're not totally different. There are stereotyped versions. You see a clay figure around the, the, the height of a normal, I'm six feet tall, and most of them are about the same size as me. And you see um, different hairstyles representing the different ethnic minorities, probably of the people in the army, because they weren't all from the same place. Slight differences in armor. I'm talking about here, not real armor, but um, designed uh, ter- terracotta armor on, on the body. There are slight differences. What happened was that they made a figure which was um, fired in a large kiln. And you then have a figure without a head. You have a torso and the legs. And then other things were added. So probably the heads were made separately. The head was fixed into the top. And then uh, the finishing touches rather like in, in, a, in a, a studio of a modern artist, like Rubens, for example, did something very similar in his studio. He had 40 assistants who used to decorate little, each had a job, one to do the ears, one to do some clothing. And so the terracotta warriors were slightly individualized by adding things like eyebrows, lips, ears, which were simply strips of clay, rather like a child nearly modeling plasticine to make something to fit onto, onto a face. So there was an attempt to make them all look a little bit different. But it's not true that they're all totally different. Um, there, are, there are several, probably around eight basic types, which were then elaborated. And the hairdos and the, and, and the weapons were, uh, were differentiated also according to the rank of the people. They were differentiated between a general, an ordinary soldier, a charioteer, a government official, of it were done more elaborately with more things added to make them stand out from the others. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all-new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a a little help from Blinds.com. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples 
free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You mentioned that you believe now that they aren't um, a representation of the warriors of the time or the soldiers of the time, but guardians in a sense. So I guess that answers the question really, but how, how representative are these figures of how soldiers or warriors would have looked? Well, we, we do have examples from other tombs of costumes, especially from the Han Dynasty. We do know the approximate size. And actually, I think most of these um, I will call them ritual guards or ceremonial guards, were taller than the average population. This is this is completely coherent, even with modern practice, where there used to be, I'm not sure if there are now, minimum height requirements for guards regiments, for example. Certainly there were in Italy, I know. Um, so, that, so that the guards were tall and stood out and were quite different from the others. So these things mean that they're not the same as other soldiers. They also had um, quite elaborate armor, which is expensive. Ordinary soldiers probably didn't wear armor. So I would imagine that these were people who were selected for maybe even from what we might call as good families, you know, people with a family from a with good reputation, or sons or people who, who were from families of important officers in the Imperial Army. It was a big honor to be there. This is one of the things that we don't understand sometimes about the voluntary suicides that court officials and officers um, undertook. You know, they believed that if the emperor was going to live forever and they were with him, so they would too. So it was worth following him. Uh, to be able to continue in the same role, to maintain their their wealth, and also to to maintain the, the the power of the family who continued to live. So I think these soldiers probably. I mean, these soldiers were models, of course. They weren't they weren't um, buried with the emperor like many officials used to be. But generally speaking, I would think these were all people of a fairly high uh, military or social level. So they were chosen to be. Um, ceremonial guards rather than to go into battle. There are very few. I haven't seen them with wounds, for example. Uh, a lot of a lot of um, standard soldier statues in in various countries I've seen have wounds, even in some Chinese sculpture. You can see knife wounds and and and, and amputations and other things. These are all fairly intact, as if they have never really been in a hard fought battle, but were more ceremonial guards. And what other figures um, were found aside from the soldiers? Well, first of all, I'd like to say I don't think anymore that they were soldiers or warriors. Um, that was the original hypothesis, that these were warriors to guard the tomb. Um, and the guides used to say that they were facing east because that's where any enemies would come from. I don't really believe that anymore because the empire was so powerful that there weren't any enemies who could have arrived there. And I think now they were much more like ceremonial guards. And you could think of them rather like the lifeguards or the guard regiments in London, where they have their barracks quite near to the, to the royal palace, but not inside it. And their main duty is ceremonial and ritual. So when, when the queen goes to Westminster Abbey, she has an escort of ceremonial warriors dressed up in, in fancy costumes and probably that was the role of, of the of the the soldiers inside, the the terracotta warrior pits. 
In other words, they were ceremonial guards rather than fighting men. This is why, uh, if, if you look at them, none of them wear helmets or hats. They all have quite elaborate hairdos. You can't really wear an elaborate hairdo with a bun and, uh, on the side of your head and then put a helmet on top of it. So you know, the, the function was a bit different. Then in the other parts around the mausoleum, there were more specialized areas in which um, there were completely different people. The most famous example, uh, which is becoming better known, is uh, the pit, which used to have what were described as acrobats, who were thought to be there to delight um, the emperor and put on performances. It's now believed, and I, I, I'm totally convinced, that these weren't acrobats at all, but they were athletes, weightlifters, especially because some weights have just been found very recently, I'm speaking of about five years ago, um, for training purposes. And I believe that the purpose of these athletes, um, weightlifters, perhaps javelin throwers, other athletes, was to perform ceremonial games for the king. In fact, if we remember the origin of the Olympic Games in Greece, was as a post-mortem athletic contest to celebrate the death of the king. And I think the ones in Xi'an were probably at a similar purpose. With the difference that the Chinese believed at that time, or the emperor believed, that he would um, come out of his tomb three or four times a year to visit his empire. And on those occasions, there would be a series of ceremonies, one of which could have been an athletic co competition. And this is even more plausible because, in fact, the pit where the athletes are found is very, very close to his um, to his burial chamber, maybe 50 or 60 meters away. So it's one of the first things that he would have come to when he came out after doing his ritual cleansing and prayers and whatever he did um, before he went on his ceremonial tour. So then there's another there's another <clears throat> there's another site nearby, for example. Um, emperors, just like also in, in Europe, were very fond of hunting. And so there was a, an ornamental lake with a lot of birds that have been found and also some human figures who it's now believed were probably musicians. Some of them, uh, one historian, Chinese historian, has explained how they're sitting in the right positions. Their hands were probably hold, holding instruments made of wood which have now decayed. But these, you can imagine something like birds flying and fish and musicians there to entertain the emperor when he comes out of his tomb. So this is another, these figures again are completely different to the figures in the, in the, um, in the terracotta warrior pits. The athletes, for example, look pretty much like Greek athletes. They're wearing very short togas and much more slender figures. So completely different. There's a weightlifter who's huge with huge biceps. He hasn't been put on public display yet because he's still being restored, but I've seen him, and he is absolutely huge. I mean, I'll give you an example. His shoes would have been size 54 in, in, in I mean, I don't, I don't know the, I'm sorry, I don't know the English sizes anymore, but would have been a 54. A 12, a 12, which is my feet, is, is 46, is probably size 16 or 17 or something. So you can imagine his biceps, his calves, his legs, he was almost certainly a champion weightlifter or something similar. He's also a sitting figure, which is very unusual because he's not standing up. So there are lots of different characters. 
and there may be more because um, it simply is not possible to excavate everything. There's too much, and a lot of the land has also been covered up. I'll give you an example of that. Between the mausoleum, where the pits I've just been talking about are, and the pits with the terracotta warriors, it's about 1,500 meters of land. And on that, there is a sewing machine factory that was built in the 30s, extended in the 50s, and it's still there. So nobody has been able to excavate underneath the factory. Now, if the land is extended northwards, as as Professor Jang, the new director of archaeology, believes, you find modern expressways and railway lines and new factories. So it's really very difficult to imagine what can be underground. Probably much, much more. It's remarkable to think what might else be be under there. And I and I think um, you were you were talking just then about the emperor coming out of his tomb, but that's one key key part that hasn't actually been opened yet and you're, you're not actually sure when it when it may ever be opened is that right well i wouldn't say never but i very much doubt it will be in my lifetime or even yours because there are so many problems involved and also there are political problems the main problem is being able to preserve it exactly as it is which is a very serious problem there i think one of the most interesting things in the discovery part of the book is the discovery of the importance of color in all of the statues um, of the mausoleum. When they were excavated, the first ones in, in the 1970s, usually the work was done in, in the summer for the obvious reason that in the winter, where it's much colder than here, the, the temperature can go down to minus five or minus 10 degrees centigrade regularly in the winter. So building work stops, archeological digs stop. This means they're done in the summer. And this is a very important fact because in the summer, the humidity is very low and the color requires a humidity of around 80% to survive. This means that if you're taking out figures which are dry, in dry air, as used to happen, the color flakes off before they can even get them out of the pit. And the bodies were covered with Chinese lacquer and were painted on top of that. So, uh, you know, they, they had white, white skin and a little bit of red really like makeup nowadays, a little bit of red on the cheeks and the lips to make them look real. But the lacquer disintegrates. You know, a piece of, you can see experiments where a piece of lacquer 10, centimeter, 10 centimetres long shrinks to about four centimetres in a couple of minutes. When the lacquer shrinks, all the pigment falls off, which is why all the early warriors are grey, clay-coloured. The newer ones, which have the colour, are really quite extraordinary and have really extraordinary details, much more than, than simply a bit of mud um, to make an eyebrow. They have things, for example, painted eyelashes, which in the old statues, the 6,000 or the 2,000 which have been excavated of the 6,000 in, in pit number one, none of them have eyelashes, very few of them have colour. So there are new techniques um, to preserve the colour. And uh, most of these things will never go on show. Because if, um, if they were opened and hundreds of people came in, the humidity levels and temperature level would be enough to destroy the paint and the lacquer. So the, even the things I've seen are inside labs where they have a maximum number of people who can enter at any one time. For example, two or three people with very highly regulated temperature humidity controls. And this is, this is interesting, but it's a problem because really... Um, 
large numbers of visitors can only see or will only be able to see photographs or digital reproductions. And I imagine that inside, well, I don't imagine, inside the large tomb, they would like to be able to guarantee that everything is preserved exactly as it is when the tomb is opened. And technology is just not ready yet. It's too big. You, know, you, can, do, you can do it for one soldier or a, a small well, two or three square meter hole, but you can't do it for a 900 square meter um, room full of antiquities and God knows what else. Until that technology is available, what's um, suspected to be inside the tomb? <laughs> I have no idea. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. No, probably, I believe, and some people believe, there will be, because he was a collector, like all great monarchs, I suppose, probably we would find a lot of objects from other countries around. We might find things like, for example, in the Scythian exhibition in the British Museum last year, um, gold things from, from Scythia. We might find Greek artifacts, uh, almost certainly we would find Greek artifacts because some have been found in and near Xi'an in the last few months. And they would be vases, jewelry, I have no idea, obviously. But not Greece, not Greek from Greece, but I mean from Greek Bactria, which is now Afghanistan, which was conquered by Alexander the Great, who founded several um, temples and cities. So it's very likely that there'll be some Greek or Greek-inspired objects, Scythian objects, maybe other Western objects, very precious things. We know, for example, if you look at his his grandfather to the 13th, the 13th generation, this Duke Jing, who I mentioned, mentioned before, who died in, in the 6th century BC, his tomb has been opened. And it's quite interesting because you can see that there are three rooms, much smaller, obviously. There are three rooms, one of which was a kind of reception room where people could go and meet him and have a chat then and something to eat and drink. There was a central room, which was his burial chamber. And then there was a third room in, in sequence, which was um, a private study or private room. And that, interestingly, had a small door that leaded, led on to another room, which was only accessible by the Duke. And there he kept his private collection of porcelain and, and, and jewellery, very personal objects. And there are several examples in other tombs of this as well. So I would imagine that there would be something similar, that he would have like a private museum of his favourite things is inside there. And that would, of course, be... I, th I believe that that would be far more astonishing than anything that's ever been found so far, either in Xi'an itself or even in Tutankhamen or anything else in the world, because a private collection of a man like that would be quite large and astonishing. But I'm very sad that I don't think I will ever see it. If we could go back to the um, the creation of the mausoleum itself then, and what is known about... You, you already mentioned that it was um, obviously begun many years before the first emperor's death, but, but what's known about the, the number of workers who, who worked on it and the, the scale of the, the work? Well, this is, a, this is a, hmm, an old chestnut. There were obviously huge numbers of people involved. Sima Chen writes of 700,000, which um, a lot of people say is exaggerated, it couldn't be possible, but you know, that, that, that's an example of not understanding how China worked. He doesn't mean 700,000 working there altogether, but 700,000 maybe over 20 years. It could even be 700,000 in the whole empire, 
But their way of working was different to ours. Remember what I just said about digging in, in the summer? This was seasonal work. So if you look one generation later than, than, than Qin Shi Huang, the first Han emperor, we actually have surviving examples of building orders. And this is how it was done. And this is certainly the same because the people who worked for the first Han emperor had certainly worked for Qin Shi Huang, a bit like civil servants continue even when the government changes. They're still the same people or basically the same people. So they, they worked in the same way. So I decide that I, the emperor, want to have a new wall around a part of the city and I measure its length and I think that would need 150,000 people working seven hours a day or that's ridiculous, working 10 or 12 hours a day for 30 days, we could make the wall. So I then order my officials to recruit 150,000 men for one month. What he did then, because they had a census of the number of families and people in all the parts of the empire, like the Normans had with the Doomsday Book, they simply, I'm, I'm sort of making it simple here, they sent a letter to each family saying each family must send one person for one month to work here. This applied to every family within about three or four hundred miles of the site. In this way, you could easily get 120,000 workers. It's a bit like in a very simple way. I, I'm sitting in London. I could find, if I need 20 workers tomorrow morning, I put a sign outside the door and probably there are 20 people waiting there for a day's work or a month's work. So it was very easy for him to recruit very large numbers of people. And they came from all over the empire. One of the most interesting things about archaeology recently is bioarchaeology, where people are able to study the food that workers used. And so to, to be able to estimate where they came from, people who came from the south or the north or the west ate different food. And the, that can now be understood. So we can see that you know, 150,000 people coming from all over the empire was very easy for them to manage. So the numbers are really not very difficult to imagine. Another aspect, actually, is that a lot of the a lot of the um, workers were criminals, convicts, who who were, were who were simply forced to work. You've written in your book about the conservation techniques, and you already mentioned the um, new techniques that have been um, developed to stop the the paint from flaking off. Um, what other um, technological advances have changed the way in which these figures have been preserved? And I guess talking about them coming to Liverpool and um, changed the way in which they've been transported as well. Yeah, I don't think they've been travelling abroad for a long time now. I mean, about twenty years including in the British Museum about 10 years ago. And so I, I think nothing much has changed there. They have a very small number which are used for these foreign trips. In terms of, of, of conservation, the colour is the most important thing at the moment. And new techniques also for repairing. Uh, for example, there's a laboratory in, in the, in, on the site where they experiment with different kinds of clay, different mixtures to be able to reproduce exactly the same material that was used for the original um, figures so that they can be restored, pieces can be repaired. This is, I think, very useful. Another example is using, uh, which is in the book, is the air, air currents. They're trying to find ways of blasting air over a pit cold air in one direction, warm air in the other direction, so that 
the air is kept inside the tomb, the humidity level is kept constant while they're working inside. Lots of little things like this. Nothing very, very dramatic. I think the most dramatic thing is, is the understanding of colour. Um, so you've you've talked about the um, ambiguous nature of some of the figures and the the um, acrobats that may have been athletes and um, the purposes of other figures. And for you, because I, I know um, you dedicate a lot of your book to the, the mystery of some of the creation, for you, what's the most intriguing uh, mystery around uh, any of the figures? Well, where the idea came from. Um, because in the example of his father and grandfather who had large tombs, his grandmother had a large tomb, the Duke I just mentioned, of 13 generations early, had a large tomb. They all had figures, but apart from the human figures who were murdered or, or, or sacrificed themselves to join them, most of the statues and works of art were very, very small, around something like 10 to 15 centimetres. So very, very small. So the most intriguing idea is where, quite suddenly, out of nowhere, somebody decided to build such huge figures, such as had never existed before. That's one of the most interesting things to, to understand. And I think the solution to that may be amongst the objects inside the mausoleum that we, that we won't ever see. And that's that's where this, this connection has been a bit overblown um, in some documentaries and books about, about the... Greek connection, but there certainly is some sort of influence, which I think is is very important and interesting. And, and but we don't know enough about it yet. There again, however, new excavations are throwing up things all the time. And a, a piece of Greek sculpture was found in a river near Xi'an about a month ago. Um, so it was there that there were things arriving somehow with traders, and, and this makes it all the more intriguing. The archaeological programs for the next year or two, I can tell you what they are. And th this will show you how the archaeologists are thinking. One of the most intriguing possibilities now is to find roads or a road which led to the mausoleum site. For example, it's very likely that there was a road leading to the west towards Shenyang, which was the capital of the city. It's very likely that any ceremony would have followed that road to arrive at the west gate of the mausoleum. So one of the most interesting archaeological prospects is that this year, probably the second half of this year, an excavation will begin just outside the west gate of the mausoleum. And that that, that the archaeologists are very excited about it, and there there could be very interesting things to be discovered. However, also there are some soundings being done now um, around what would be uh, the North Gate going towards the river, which is just a few kilometres away, because it's very likely that a lot of material, uh, for example, timber, could have come down the river from the forest further further to the west and, and been unloaded, and that workers were uh, transported, other objects transported overland, whereas the road out of the West Gate to Shenyang would have been a ceremonial road for the emperor, this would have been rather like a back entrance, like a, a worker's entrance. And it's quite likely that some of the workshops that the UCL team in, 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 in London have been speculating about were situated along this road down to the river. That's where a town was built to house the workers that we know about. So I think the two things. First, going west, trying to find 
where the road was, if there was a road, and what it was like, um, and how it could have been used for the ceremony, and south, how and where all the work was done. There must have been hundreds or thousands of workshops situated somewhere that have never been discovered, and they're quite likely to be even quite a long way, but that means they would need a road. And the road coming from the river upwards seems to me a very, a very likely hypothesis. So these are two interesting things that could give us lots more information. I don't think we're going to find warriors which are completely different to these. We might find some slightly different figures, like the, 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 the sitting wrestler, which I mentioned before, the only figure, as far as I know, that's sitting down um, out of the whole lot. Um, some small things like that are likely to happen. One of the problems is that this mausoleum was never finished. The, the pits I was talking about with athletes and and, and uh, horses where, where the imperial chariots have been found are in a very small area around the mausoleum. And there's a great empty stretch of land, which probably would have had other things added because the emperor died far earlier than he expected to. So I don't think it was finished. Um, one archaeologist who's worked on that tomb and also the tomb of the of the of the Han Emperor I mentioned near the airport of Xi'an with the forty thousand figures, he believes that uh, the the idea, the template for the Han tomb was based Han mausoleum was based on that of Chen Chihuang. And since there the there are these eighty one pits with ministries and all sorts of things, it's quite likely that Chen Chihuang would have completed a similar project, and there would have been things all around the mausoleum that were never finished. More information about that would be very interesting. But I don't think we're going to find new kinds of characters, just understand much better who they were, what they were doing, where the influence to make them came from, and the role of the whole place and how big, really, the mausoleum was and what it was all for. Because it was designed as a kind of microcosm of the empire, it wasn't simply a tomb, it was something much more. But we just don't do enough. I mean, what a lot of things I've said this morning have been very hypothetical. I mean, we, we really don't know. It's a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of dreaming. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time in joining us, Edward, on the podcast. Okay. My pleasure. Edward Berman's Terracotta Warriors, History, Mystery and the Latest Discoveries is published by Wiedenfeld and Nicholson in hardback and ebook, and is out now. Um, and the exhibition, China's First Emperor and the Terracotta Warriors, runs at the World Museum Liverpool until the 28th of October 2018. And you can find out more at liverpoolmuseum.org.uk. That was Edward Berman. And you can read a piece by Edward in our February issue, which has just gone off sale in the UK, but is available as a back issue and in digital, as well as in many retailers outside the UK. Here in Britain, our March issue has just gone on sale, containing pieces on the Bayer Tapestry, Elizabeth I, World War I and a whole lot more. Look out for it in all good news agents now. And that is about all for today, but please do join us again on Monday when we'll be speaking about 20th century women scientists. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. 
For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 